Hey there, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Tuesday, September the 15th. Coming up on the show, Western University is upping their COVID testing capacity after five students tested positive on the weekend. What you need to know about that process and the CERB is ending in two weeks. If you or someone you know are on the CERB, stick around. David McDonald, a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, will tell us what to expect and who may stand to lose. Let's get right down to it. Toronto police investigators had a press conference yesterday and they say they're continuing to probe into circumstances surrounding two recent fatal stabbings in the city's West End. They're encouraging residents to be extra cautious about anything suspicious. Here to talk about it, Global News crime reporter Catherine McDonald. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Good to have you on. Thank you for having me. So off the hop, can you speak to the significance of Inspector Hank Gazinga holding the press conference yesterday? Right. So on Saturday night, there was a stabbing uh, outside of the IMO Mosque on Rexdale Boulevard, which is right where Rexdale and Islington meet near the 401. This man was sitting out front. He's a the caretaker of the mosque. He's a volunteer. And according to police, someone just walked up to him stabbed him once and fled the scene. This man, a 58-year-old man by the name of Mohammed Aslim Zafis, uh, was pronounced dead at the scene, and the mosque was shut down, the investigation began, and yesterday they released some video of, of the suspect, actually Sunday. Uh, and then, uh, yesterday, Hank Zinga, the, the head of the homicide squad, held a news conference, and he wanted uh, the public to be aware of the fact that police are considering the possibility that the man uh, wanted for the stabbing of this man outside the mosque could be the man also responsible for a fatal stabbing that happened just five days earlier when a jogger uh, was out uh, jogging under a bridge uh, near Highway 27, about five kilometers away. He came upon a homeless man who had been viciously stabbed to death as he slept. And police say for a number of reasons they they're looking at the possibility that the same person who stabbed uh, Mohammed Aslim Safis could be the, the man responsible for, for killing Rampreet Peter Singh, the 39-year-old homeless man. Right. And what are the similarities between the two victims? Well, what's most uh, remarkable is that both of these men were did nothing to provoke these attacks. They It appears they were strangers. So these were stranger attacks. Uh, number two, they were both stabbed. And number three, they were both uh, stabbed within five kilometers of one another um, and, uh, you know, within five days. So that, that raises the alarm bells, obviously. People who live in the neighborhood are being warned to be on alert, to avoid the area under the bridge where Mr. Singh was found dead uh, last Monday morning. Uh, and But police are also saying we're ramping up the patrols and we are trying to get more video of the of the suspect. Uh, the other thing they say is they are looking at that a possible motive could be uh, that these are hate crimes. Both men um, are ethnic men. They don't say what ethnicities. Um, but... Uh, Clearly, this is something that would be concerning, if not alarming, to people who live in this part of Etobicoke. Right. And it sounds as though we may have learned something from um, what happened with the Bruce MacArthur case. I remember, you know, we started hearing uh, rumblings and, and some reports of people, uh, men in the gay village saying, look, at I, I, have, I have loved ones have been missing and friends have been missing for a while. And we think we're dealing with a serial killer. 
At which point um, the chief of police at the time, Mark Saunders, came out and said, well, no, that's not something we're looking into, a serial killer in Toronto. And they had to walk that back, uh, of course, when uh, they realized that's exactly what they were dealing with, with Bruce MacArthur. And Hank Azinga was the inspector that handled that case. Yes, he was the acting inspector at the time. And certainly, I think the police have learned lessons from the way they handled that case. I mean, a reporter did ask yesterday, if these cases are connected and if they're you know could we possibly be dealing with a serial killer well serial killer implies three or more victims so there's a lot of hypotheticals here certainly police are covering um, you know covering themselves by telling the community that this is one of one of the possibilities we are looking at we are investigating because you know this way at least the community isn't in the dark and can't uh, complain that they were uh, not notified when police were considering this. So, I, I mean, a serial killer really is an alarming term. And uh, when I heard that question asked yesterday, of course, I'm thinking, well, wait a second here. You know, yeah. so far, police are still saying it's a possibility. They're not saying that we've connected them. And and serial killer implies more than two victims. So, I, you know, I don't want to... I'm very careful about using that term because that is a very alarming term. And police do not want to cause panic. But they do certainly want people to be aware and they don't want to be accused of not informing the community again because that was a mistake in that investigation involving the victims of Bruce MacArthur. Catherine, do we know if they're investigating other uh, cases, maybe missing persons that could be tied to to these killings or, uh, you know, is that why they would say we're not going to rule out a serial killer? Or am I I leaping? there is a missing persons unit that has been formed as a result of the Bruce MacArthur case. And certainly I know some of those investigators, it, I'm sure this morning they are looking at other cases from this area to see if there are any, you know, maybe cases that are similar, you know, similar type victims. Um, I don't, you know, I, I think that police are very cautious now and very aware that everything's possible. And in the old days, they might not have wanted to say this is potentially a serial killer, but now they're thinking differently because they know that they could be criticized if they don't. So I'm sure the missing persons unit is also liaising. There, it is part of the homicide squad. Uh, Hank oversees that that area, and so I'm sure they are looking to try and find any kind of other similar cases. But so far at this point, they're really just trying to connect these two two cases, and they haven't yet been connected. But um, if there if there is going to be a link made, we're going to find out about it. And it is disturbing that they have happened in the west end of Toronto around the West Humber Trail. Police are advising you to be very much on your guard. And, you know, while we're in the midst of COVID, people are getting out and they're trying to get more exercise. So this is worrying. What are uh, police actually warning people to be on the lookout for? Well, certainly they want people to look at this video that's on our website at globalnews.ca slash Toronto. Uh, they, they want people to call in if they recognize this man, and they want people to be aware and, and uh, of their surroundings. When you go out for a jog, maybe don't wear those headphones. Uh, and, you know, I, I know some people go out and they don't take their phone. Take your phone with you just in case. And uh, and certainly avoid that trail where that homeless man was found last Monday. So um, I know from the perspective of the mosque, I'm here now. It's the International Muslim Organization of Toronto Mosque at 65 Rexdale Boulevard. It's going to remain closed until further notice. Um, people, I spoke to people who come here, and they're nervous. And, and there are cameras all over the mosque. So um, right now what we know about this suspect is that he's five foot six. 
130 pounds. They can't say uh, whether he's white or black. The video doesn't is not clear, but they they do have other video, and police are going to be releasing more. But they want to hear from the public. They want tips. They want to try and catch this person. Uh, and if they can link him to the second homicide, then and and they do that conclusively, we will find out in the next few days. I'm sure. Catherine, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Cheers. That's Catherine McDonald, our global news crime reporter. Um, so that is, I, I mean, at the very least, uh, it is something to be concerned about when when you think that uh, these two crimes happened in the same area of the city. So uh, unnerving to say the very least. But the CERB is ending in um, just a little under two weeks, if you're doing the math here. And if you or someone you know are on the CERB, then you might want to turn up the radio and hear what our first guest has to say. I'd like to welcome to the show David McDonald, a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Welcome. Good to have you. Uh, Good morning. Thanks for having me. So you've got a new report out from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And in this report, uh, you say that almost three million Canadians will be worse off after the transition from the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit to the EI program or other new benefits. Let's start off by, you know, running down how many people are going to be switching over in just under two weeks. It uh, looks like about four million people will do the switchover. There's about four million people on CERB, and that's been pretty stable since the middle of August. Uh, you know, it's been coming down for some time, but it looks like we'll be in the four million range for the number of people who will do the switchover. And the the thing that caught my eye, and I'm sure a lot of people's attention with your report, is you say almost three quarters of former CERB recipients will be worse off when they switch over to a different type of relief. How so? Well, uh, so CERB was providing $500 a week. Um, you know, you could get it in different ways. Uh, in you know, two week block at $1,000 or four week block at $2,000, uh, but it worked out to, f- to $500 a week. Um, when we roll back into these various programs, they all now have different values. Um, and so the uh, the EI program, you can get between 400 and 573 a week, depending on your previous earnings. So there's going to be a lot of people um, that were receiving 500 on CERB and are going to drop down to, say, the $400 floor. That's the new floor on EI. Um, the new CRB benefit, which is for self-employed people or gig workers, that comes in at $400. Uh, there's about half a million people who will receive no support after CERB ends. They won't be eligible for any of the new programs. And then there's a group of people uh, who will roll into EI's Working While on Claim program. Uh, and that's uh, you know, it, it, it existed prior to the pandemic, but um, it will have a lot more people in it now. Uh, and the way it works is that if you become unemployed and then you get uh, your original job back or a different job back, but at, at, at a fewer hours, you can still claim some EI, um, but you get it clawed back. And so uh, those folks as well are going to draw the average down. Um, and so um, the CERB was paying out a flat $500 a week to everybody. Um, now the average for people after CERB ends will be $377 a week. So a fair drop in terms of what people can expect to receive. And the other piece that isn't actually calculated into that average is that um, you're going to owe taxes on all of the, on all of these programs, CERB, EI, the new CR programs, um, you'll owe tax on all of it. But under CERB, you didn't pay those, you didn't get those taxes withdrawn up front. You got the full $500 a week. Whereas right. and, and was EI, that, for, yeah, was that so that we could put it back in the economy? Yeah, I mean, you're still, still going to owe taxes on it at tax time in March. Um, right. But I, uh, the, the point is that, like, in terms of straight-up cash value, what appears in your bank account, 
Um, you know, Serb, you got the full 500. Um, people get on average 377 from these, depending on where they end up in these new programs. But that's not actually the amount that they'll receive in their bank accounts. They will receive slightly less than that because taxes will be withheld. Um, and so for a lot of people, it'll be a big difference in terms of what they're receiving in support. Is that better or worse? I, I know that you're going to be getting less right up front, but, you know, people tend to, if they see money in their bank account, they tend to overspend. And if you don't have the money to pay out for taxes later, you could be in some some trouble down the line. So is it, you know, we are looking at people being receiving less, but is it a better idea that they're taxed up front? Yeah, you're quite right. It cuts both ways. I mean, for the people that have been receiving CERB, a lot of people don't realize they're going to owe tax on that in March, and they probably didn't put that money away in a bank account and save it till March. Uh, and so there's going to be a, a tax bill to be paid in March, whereas with these new programs, it's all a portion of it because, you know, the, the, these agencies don't know how much you're going to make. Maybe you don't know how much you're going to make over the course of the year. And so they take off a bit uh, on taxes, usually in the neighborhood of 10%, which may or may not be what you will owe. And so people may still owe more. Uh, I mean, it cuts both ways. But I mean, it's just worth pointing out to people that are going through this transition that they're just going to be receiving a lot. They will likely be receiving a lot less than they were on CERB for most people. David, you mentioned something uh, earlier on a few minutes ago that I think a lot of people um, might have uh, had a big question mark about. And that was the fact that there are going to be Canadians that do not qualify for the CERB now when we're switching over. Like they qualified for the CERB, sorry, uh, but they're not going to be eligible for anything else. Who are you referring to? Yeah, so there's three big groups here. Um, the smallest group uh, is the group of self-employed people who make over $38,000 a year and therefore won't be eligible for the CRB. This is the CERB replacement program that's going to go to self-employed and gig workers. So if you make if you made too much in 2020, um, you you can well you can claim it, but you're just going to owe it all back in your taxes anyway. So people probably aren't going to do that. About 40,000 people in that group. About 70,000 people in a group that will technically qualify for EIs working while on claim. They just won't make enough to make it worthwhile to go through the rigmarole at, uh, at EI to claim it. So they'll be making under $50 a week from, uh, from their benefits at EI, so they probably, it probably won't be worthwhile for them to claim it. But they are receiving the full serve amount. So there's 70,000 people in that group. And then there's the biggest group of this, uh, you know, it's 412,000 people um, who at present... Uh, you know, the prior to the pandemic, they weren't making very much and they didn't have a lot of hours. They lost work during the pandemic, but then got that low wage, low hour job back at its full amount. And because of those circumstances, they were they were making under a thousand dollars a month. So they could claim CERB. But um, as we move off of CERB, they would, uh, you know, I suppose, I mean, they'd be rolled back into EI, I suppose. But um, they, they wouldn't receive anything from EI because they've gone back to their previous hours, but they were receiving support through CERB. And so that's the biggest group over 400,000. So that makes up the group of people that will, that were receiving CERB, but won't receive anything on, on new programs after the switchover. All right. The Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives report also um, said that there are another 366,000 Canadians who didn't qualify for the CERB, but actually may be eligible for EI when those changes kick in at the end of the month. Who are you referring to? Yeah, so this is interesting, is that the, that the e, it depends on your circumstances, but some of the EI constraints are actually less severe than CERB in some circumstances. So the biggest group of people that couldn't get CERB but may well be able to qualify for EI is people who made over that $1,000 um, a month threshold on CERB. If you made over $1,000, you got no CERB. But if you made you know $900 uh, a month, then you could get CERB. So this is a group of people that made between, say, $1,000 and $2,000 a month. They couldn't get CERB, 
but they will be able to get something likely through EIs working well on claim. They'll get it clawed back, so they won't get the full you know, $400 amount. They'll get it clawed back based on uh, earnings, but they, but they will likely get something on EI. And this is sort of an interesting circumstance where people, um, for the first time, will, will actually be eligible for some support, whereas they, they couldn't get served. And then there's another group of people that will likely be eligible for EI benefits because the difference between EI hours, if you're not paid very much, you can make the EI hours threshold of 120 hours, but not make the SERB threshold of $5,000 in the previous 12 months. And so people who are at low-wage jobs um, who just have over 120 hours in the past year will make the EI threshold and will be able to receive EI regular benefits but couldn't have received SERB. So that is good news for those folks, those 300,000 folks. Um, and it's a bit of a trade-off. So, you, you know, 500,000 people are going to lose support, whereas a different 300,000 people will gain some support uh, through mm. the EI system. I think it's important to note as well, uh, and your report says this, that if you you actually, the transition might be a bit more difficult, this switchover from CERB to EI, depending on how you applied for uh, your benefits, your assistance. Um, can you talk about that? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know how much people realize um, that many of these applications, even if you're CERB eligible, are not going to be ported automatically. So if you went to the CRA website, this is, you know, the website where you file your taxes and all that, and you applied to the CERB through the CRA website, and you're receiving it at the $2,000 every four weeks, uh, you know, that, that's how you're receiving it. You're in, you're in the CRA system. Um, and if you're in the CRA system and, you know, you're, you think you're probably EI eligible, you know, you're working at a regular job part of the pandemic and you lost your job, they are not going to port your application across. You're going to have to go to, the, go to the ESDC website and apply for EI on September 27th. And if you don't, you will receive nothing. You will crash out of the program, even if you are EI eligible. Now, if you are receiving EI through um, ESDC's portal, that is to say you're receiving $1,000 every two weeks, uh, then you will be ported automatically. And so this is, I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's over three quarters of a million people that are in this circumstance. They're getting their serve through CRA. Um, They're probably EI eligible, but their application is not going to be moved over automatically. They're going to have to do it manually. Um, And so I I just think, you know, I I haven't heard a lot of um, outreach on this. Um, And, you know, there's 300, you know, there's 781,000 people that are likely in this circumstance. And I don't think are receiving kind of communications that be required to say, hey, you should, you know, you should go check to make sure your claim's going across. You can continue to receive support after September 27th. So they might fall through the cracks. So what's your recommendation? Well, in this case, I mean, there, there should be outreach to the people that are receiving CERB through the CRA portal to say, hey, look, this is ending. Uh, you need to be moved. You know, you're going to have to move to one of these new programs if you, you know, if you haven't gotten a job, you haven't, you, know, you haven't gotten your work back. Uh, you know, these are the ways to do it. Um, and in some cases, you're going to have to move to a totally different website, which is going to be the ESDC's EI website, and you're going to have to apply through EI through there. Um, and that type of outreach, so these folks are probably all eligible for EI, uh, but there may well be delays because, you know, maybe they didn't know, maybe it takes them a couple of weeks to figure out, oh, geez, I, you know, I, I didn't get my latest payment. What's going on? And you figure out, oh, I should have applied over here. And it takes another week for that to go through. And, you know, there could be delays in addition to people, uh, you know, just, just thinking, oh, it's all, it's all done. I guess I don't have any support, even though I don't have a job. Yeah, and this could have an inc- an economic impact, and I think it's really important to punctuate that these benefit programs they actually have been supporting the economy uh, during this pandemic. 
Yeah, I mean, there's what's really been surprising during the pandemic is that there hasn't been a bigger decrease in consumer spending. I mean, usually in, in recessions, consumers uh, withdraw spending pretty quickly because obviously they're losing jobs and, and also they're concerned that they might lose jobs. And so they save more of the money and, 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 um, and don't spend it in the economy. That really hasn't been as much the case this time around. It's in large part due to CERB. Uh, so the CERB was rapidly rolled out. Um, it, uh, you know, it had higher benefit levels and broader coverage than EI had. And uh, so people didn't feel that same constraint on income and then continued to spend. Now, most people, as the, as the report points out, um, will receive support after, um, after CERB. Now, it's not going to be as much, but they'll receive support. Um, now, for the people that don't receive support, I mean, their household budgets are certainly going to be constrained. But even for the people that do receive support, most are going to receive uh, less. Uh, in some mm-hmm. cases, you know, hundreds of dollars less. And so that inevitably will have an impact on um, on economic growth. You know, look, it saves the federal government money. I mean, uh, you know, if you're looking at this positive side, the feds don't spend as much. The downside is is that, you know, jobless Canadians or people who, who don't make very much are, are going to be the ones footing the bill for this. And in the end, we're going to see a hit on consumer spending on the GDP level. David, I want to ask you before I let you go, what are you hoping to hear um, in the throne speech that might alleviate some of the problems that you brought up here? Well, I mean, this is not legislation. So this new suite of new programs is not legislation. They haven't been created yet by the uh, Parliament of Canada. Um, and I suspect that this is the, you know, this is the Liberals' proposal as to what they would like to see happen. Uh, they may have to negotiate with other parties to, uh, to get their throne speech passed and, and also to get this legislation passed. So I'm not, it's not clear to me that this is the end of this story. Um, it may well be that uh, if they want, say, the NDP support, that the NDP will push for, you know, a $500 floor instead of a $400 floor on EI and some of these new programs. And that would help a fair amount of people push them a little, a little further up and, you know, and not change the amount that they're getting that dramatically from, from what they were getting on CERB. And then there's a whole bunch of other technical issues that, you know, I've highlighted in the analysis. Um, you know, like we should put a floor on working well on claim. Um, you know, the first uh, the first application that you make to the EI system uh, should be um, uh, should be an, on an attestation basis, like it was for CERB. So you just check that, say that you're eligible, you get that first payment, and then we work out all the paperwork. Um, and so all these people. But that do are we have to worry system, about fraud in that situation at all? Or well, of course, it's the same situation with CERB, right? I mean, CERB was mm-hmm. all on an attestation basis as well. There probably was some fraud, but the trade-off is is that you know a mil- you know millions of people access the program faster, uh, and I think mm-hmm. that's a you know, that's something worth paying for that. Yeah, some people are going to try to defraud the system and we'll find them and we'll prosecute them after the fact. But, uh, you know, when there's, you know, 4 million people that are going to switch over to these new programs, you know, it's, it's worth a couple cases to fraud to make sure that people have the support they need that, you know, legitimately deserve EI or these new benefits. Um, you know, in, in my mind, that a bit of fraud is worthwhile getting benefits to people faster. David, I want to thank you for your time today. It's been really informative and I hope to talk to you again in the near future. Thanks for having me. Cheers. That's David McDonald, senior economist at the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. I think, you know, we talked, David just brought up, you know, one of the surprising things during the pandemic was consumer spending wasn't down, although, you know, people were losing their jobs. I think we're addicts. I think we are addicted to retail therapy. Five University of Western students uh, tested positive over the weekend. And yesterday, the lineup outside their mobile uh, trailer on campus was 
extreme, to say the very least. We're joined now by Jennifer Massey, Western's Associate Vice President of Student Experience. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is an experience that, you know, uh, most of us can't relate to, uh, a different kind of activity on Frosh Week. Usually we're lining up for beers. Tell us what's going on at, at the University of Western Ontario. Well, of course, universities right across the campus um, and, and indeed right across the country are adjusting to the complexities of the global pandemic. And, and Western has been planning for the last six months to welcome our students back to campus. We are delighted to have um, our students here attending classes in our, in our hybrid model and um, things are going uh, quite well all in all. Okay. Were you surprised by the amount of students that showed up? Give us an idea of how many students showed up yesterday before that testing trailer opened. Yeah, great question. So we actually opened our testing trailer on Friday and were able to administer about, we had about 50 students show up for testing and uh, and provided tests for those students. On Saturday, that number increased uh, to about 65 students and all of those students received testing. Yesterday, we actually administered 237 tests. Uh, So that's more than a quadrupling of the number of tests uh, provided here on campus, increasing the capacity of the city's testing by 30 um, last night, my, my colleagues and I had an opportunity to, uh, to debrief on what went well yesterday and where we can offer additional support. And I am delighted to tell you that today we are actually doubling the number of tests provided on campus. We um, have the capacity to provide about 500 tests today. Okay. And will you be uh, administering those tests? Like what's the demand like today as opposed to yesterday? Because I understand hundreds were lined up yesterday, had to turn people away. People were getting these red tickets. Sounds rather ominous. Coming back at a later date. What, um, how many have been tested today? And do you expect that all of the, uh, you know, 500 students, that, that they'll get their tests? Yeah, so I was actually just down at the testing center. I've been down there first thing this morning and again just a few minutes ago. Things are going very well. Uh, we have a steady um, stream of students coming in for testing. They're able to uh, to come to the, the testing center that we are issuing them with a, with a ticket. The purpose of the ticket is that if they have to go to class, uh, they can, of course, go in and go to class and then come back and, and know that if they have one of those tickets that they will be tested today. Oh, okay. So they just jump back in line. And so how do you work that? You know, say they come back from their class, there's a massive line, they have a ticket. Do they form a second line of people with tickets? And then the people in that in that line that have been waiting possibly for hours, maybe missing some classes um, because they don't want to leave the lineup, are, how are they um, compensated? Like, are they given another ticket for later on if they don't get in today? So the way in which it's working is the first 500 students that come to uh, to the testing center today will be issued with a ticket. Uh, they're welcome to stay uh, in line at that time if they if they would like to. But if it's more convenient for them to uh, to go to class or go and grab a bite to eat and then join the lineup a little bit later when we expect the numbers uh, to be a little bit uh, lower, uh, they're welcome to do that. Our goal is to try to keep the numbers flowing through there as smooth as possible. And having been down there today, I can tell you that the changes that were implemented overnight um, are really quite remarkable and that the lineup is moving quite smoothly. With five uh, cases that are positive of students, and they were off campus at the time, we have to make sure we uh, punctuate that, um, that have tested positive for COVID. Are you not concerned that kids are leaving the lineup, the the COVID testing lineup, going to class, coming back? Are you not concerned that you could have a possible outbreak on your hands? Wouldn't it be a better idea to say, don't whatever you do, don't go to class right now if you have any concerns that you may have come in with in contact with someone who's COVID positive? Is there not a way for them to access some of those classes online and stay away? 
Well, of course, the vast majority of our courses are delivered online this year. So only about 25 to 30 percent of our courses have some on-campus component. So in many cases, students are leaving the line to go back to their apartments and take the courses online. Um, And now what I will say, of course, is the way in which we're managing our on-campus testing center mirrors that of the the testing centers in the city. So uh, the London Middlesex Public Health Unit is actually providing direction on how the testing center is operating here on campus. And we're making sure that we follow all the protocols that they have outlined for us. Were you sending any of the students to like other uh, COVID testing sites in the city of London? The City of London does have uh, COVID testing sites and our students are welcome to, to go to those sites. We're encouraging students where possible to come to campus to get tested because we, we want to be good partners uh, to, to our community and uh, free up as many spaces as possible in the community. That's one of the many reasons why Western has invested this level of resourcing on our campus to provide a convenient and, and accessible opportunities for our students. How uh, strained is the community relations right now between um, people that live in London and um, Western University because of that video that appeared this weekend? People uh, on Richmond Street just packing the place, some who didn't seem concerned about social distancing at all that may have been uh, Western University students. Yeah, the university shares the concerns expressed by some members of the London community about the large numbers of young people gathered in the streets downtown. We are continuing to reiterate uh, the important message to our students that this is a shared responsibility. We all have a role to play in taking care of ourselves, taking care of each other, and taking care of this place. We care about the people of London. We're an institution that is committed to the success of, of London and the broader area, and we're encouraging our students to make wise choices. You look at the lineup, that hour, a couple hour lineups the students were in yesterday waiting for a COVID test as actually something that we can look upon and and say, okay, the attitudes might be changing when it comes to the kids. They're taking this seriously. I would say that the vast majority of Western students are taking the situation very seriously. And when I've been on campus over the past week or so and in the in the community more broadly, I've seen students wearing masks, practicing good hand sanitization and keeping in physical distance. Of course, we always have uh, more work to do and we'll continue to do that. Jennifer, thank you very much. I'm sure people listening to uh, you that have kids today at Western University feel a little more confident about the fact that you guys are up in the number of COVID tests and that you're making sure that the message is continuously expressed to their kids to make sure that they have that safe physical distancing, masking, and and proper hygiene habits uh, in play. Thank you very much, Jennifer. My pleasure. Take care. Have a great day. That's Jennifer Massey, Western's Associate Vice President of Student Experience. And that is what they call in the business a wrap. It's just basically a sample of what we do daily on the Kelly Contreras Show between 9 and noon weekdays on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Tell your friends and tune in live if you can. Have a great day. Cheers.